Well, good morning. I really appreciated that that opening message. <laughs> Many uh, words of of wisdom in there, and it will uh, connect very well with some of what I'll be speaking about as well. Um, I'm going to speak today on influence, and uh, boy, what a what an influence Job has been on so many. When you look at at his life and the way that that he recognized the gift that life itself was from God, and that all the other things he had counted for for nothing compared to just every breath that he had, he was grateful for. And even if God would take his life, he was still grateful. I mean, how many of us complain when the smallest little things happen in our life? And Job had almost everything in this life taken from him. And still he, he blessed and praised God. Before I go any further, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, to be here this morning. We, uh, we tremble in your presence, in your holy and righteous presence. We pray that, that we would be able to truly recognize our place before you. To be able to know that, that just as Job knew, that he is, he is nothing without you. And that he deserves nothing. And we do as well. We pray, Lord, we recognize truly what you've given to us. And with gratitude in our hearts to do well with it. We pray for your blessing over this time here. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, what a, what a privilege again to, to be here and be able to speak. As I said, I'll, I'll be speaking on influence today. But before I, I get into influence... I'm going to talk about our, our value, and some of, some of this was, we talked a little bit about this last night in the evening, a few of us were talking about uh, people's net worth, you know, what are you worth, or what's he worth, or, and uh, it's kind of a, a strange term that's used, this whole net worth thing, what, what's this guy worth, but uh, there's actually a, a passage in the Bible where, where Jesus talks a little bit about Somewhere, something that we're worth, and it's uh, it's found in Matthew chapter ten, and it's verse twenty nine. Just let you get there. So Matthew chapter ten, starting in verse twenty nine, it says, "Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing?" And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And we all know sparrows are like the most common bird on earth. Where I've ever been, I've seen sparrows and a lot of them. But how many sparrows are there really out there? And the fact is, no one on earth has ever been able to count them, how many sparrows on earth. But, but this word, many, you're of more value than many sparrows. If you look this up in the Greek, it can also be interpreted as all, not just many. 
it can be interpreted as all. You're of more value than all sparrows. Well, the closest anyone came to, to getting a, a serious count on sparrows was actually in China. During Mao's rule in China, during a period of time that was called the Great Leap Forward, they were, they were looking for ways to revolutionize the world together as a cooperative unit. They brought in communism and they decided to, to improve their life together. And it sounded really good. I mean, they, they were going to improve their life by everyone doing their job as a part of a greater unit. I mean, in many ways, this is, this is how we live. And uh, I encourage you to look it up if you've never read about this period of history because, man, it's interesting. During this time, they, they had a campaign. Thank you. Excuse me. They had a campaign called the Four Pests Campaign. So they... They went through and they, they found these, these four things that they wanted to eliminate from China. They wanted to eliminate rats because of the plague. They wanted to get rid of mosquitoes because of malaria. I think we could have jumped on that wagon. They wanted to eliminate flies because they're annoying. I think we'd agree with that one too. And they wanted to get rid of sparrows because they were eating their grain. And they actually had it down to a mathematical amount, how much grain these sparrows ate per year. And they thought they would be able to have this much more crops per year by eliminating all the sparrows. Now it seems like, okay, how would you even start going about getting rid of sparrows? And uh, it would definitely take an organized effort. And apparently they had an extremely organized effort. They had millions of people get together and they spent weeks, maybe months, chasing sparrows so that they died of exhaustion and and also shooting as many as they could. Literally, the sparrows were starting to run out of places to rest, and they found safety in the Polish embassy where the Poles refused to kill the sparrows. So literally, the sparrows were just flocking to the Polish embassy. And the locals who were unable to actually enter the embassy because of the, the um, what do you call it, the... The rules, yeah, it's, a, it's sovereign space. That, that space belongs to Poland, and the Chinese are not allowed to go in there. So instead, they couldn't enter it, so they surrounded the embassy with drummers. And they drummed day and night until all the sparrows died in the embassy. And they fell to the floor of the embassy, and there were so many, they literally had to shovel them out. After this campaign... And all these died. China experienced one of the worst famines in their history. As it turned out, sparrows were responsible for eating grasshoppers and locusts. And without the sparrows to stop them, the grasshoppers devastated all the grain crops. Eventually, China started to import sparrows from Russia. Apparently, a quarter million sparrows they imported to try and repopulate. They had to remove sparrows from their list of pests, and they were, they were replaced with bedbugs on the list of pests to get rid of. And it is estimated that over a billion, a billion sparrows were killed. 
Now, if we go back to this passage in Matthew, it says that a sparrow is sold, two sparrows are sold for a farthing. And if you uh, uh, convert that farthing to today's currency, that's one cent for two sparrows. And doing the math, that's, that's $5 million worth of sparrows. So according to Matthew chapter 10, you're of more value than $5 million. Perhaps many of you have heard of, of different times in history where people have been kidnapped and held for ransom. Now, usually the, the rule of thumb is if someone holds someone for ransom, they do not pay the ransom. And the reason is, is because it would encourage kidnappers. So they find some other way around. But there have been times in history where the ransom has actually been paid, a million dollars here, a couple million there, a few hundred thousand. But the greatest ransom that was ever paid was paid to uh, or paid by Atahualpa. He was the emperor of the Incas. He was captured by Francisco Pizarro in 1532. Now, the reason why the Incas were kind of held in the, in the hands so easily of the Spaniards was they were expecting a, a savior to come across the water and preach to them the gospel. Um, they had it in their history that, that a white man would come across the water and uh, and lead them back to the way that they should that they should go that apparently they had walked in before and so they they opened their arms and they let the Spaniards come in and the Spaniards took advantage of that Francisco Pizarro captured their their emperor held him for ransom and the emperor offered him to fill the room that he was being held in once with gold and twice with silver so we're talking a lot of gold and silver. And the Incan people brought that much gold and that much silver. But Pizarro still refused to release the emperor. And he took the gold and the silver, but killed the emperor. Now that amount of gold and silver that he got together was estimated value of $1.9 billion. We've gone up a lot here from... 5 million to 1.9 billion. This is, if you Google it, considered the greatest ransom ever paid. Now, if you also do some research, you'll find that the richest man on earth today, and I put that in quotations because I'm sure there are some people on earth they don't know what their net worth is, as we use the term. But the richest man on earth today, is, it's, it's not Elon Musk, if you think it was. It's, it's Bernard Arnault. He's a Frenchman who owns a high-end clothing company, which seems a strange thing to be the richest man on earth just owning clothing companies, but he is. And he's said to be worth, net worth, $190 billion. And to give you a perspective of how much money that is, if you have $1 million and you're spending $1 every second, you'll run out of money in less than two weeks. In 11 and a half days, if you have a $1 million dollars, and you spend $1 every second, you'll run out of money in 11 and a half days. You'll be broke. If you have $1 billion and you're spending $1 per second, it will take you 32 years to run out of money. So Bernard can spend $1 a second for 6,080 years. Or he can just spend $190 per second for 32 years, 
And given at his age, that might be more realistic to to do it for 32 years, $190 every second, just throwing that money away. I mean, it's an incredible amount of money, 190 billion. And that 5 million that we can compare to, and if we were worth all the sparrows, at least the ones that were killed in China, it really doesn't compare to 190 billion. But actually, we're worth a whole lot more than 5 million. Our value is, is way higher than that. And, and this greatest ransom ever paid, according to what you Google on the Internet, is, is inaccurate. Because the fact is that the greatest ransom ever paid was the one that, that Christ paid when he died on the cross for our sin. There was, there was no other price that could have covered the cost of our sin other than the death of, of Christ. That was the only payment, the only ransom that could cover the cost of our sin. And, and I mean, how much is Jesus worth? I mean, you think about it, Bernard Arnault, he, he has clothing companies he owns. A, he has $190 billion. Elon Musk is second. He's got part of Tesla, SpaceX, Twitter. He's got $156 billion. But God, he owns both of them and all that they have. He is infinitely more valuable than them. And he chose to give his life for us. He gave his life of infinite value for us. I know when I was a child, we used to argue, I'm, I'm going to get a hundred, and then the next guy, I'm going to get a thousand, and then ten, and then it was a hundred thousand, a million, then a billion, then a trillion, and then a, a Google, and then and I'm going to have infinity. You know, this was like, this is the trump card, infinity. And that's, that's the value that God put on every one of our lives infinite value, offering eternal life. It's a, it's a crazy price to pay. It's a crazy ransom. I mean, 1.9 billion seems a whole lot more reasonable than infinity. Or if God could have just given a few other people's lives that were of less value, maybe he could have given Bernard Arnault's 190 billion since it was his anyways, but he didn't. He gave his infinitely valuable life for ours. So that's what you're worth. Infinite value. You can't put a price tag on your life. And if you're worth that much, what are you going to do with your life? And I'd like to talk about influence. And I'm going to focus on the side of influence that I call passive discipleship. It's what are we teaching others by the things that we do and the way that we live our life. And there's a story that I like. This, this guy's talking to another guy about, about living his life in a way that he can, that he can help share Christ with his neighbors. And, uh, and he was, the guy's wondering, you know, how do I, how do I do this sharing God thing with, with my neighbors and my friends and my relatives? 
And he said, well, it's more about living a godly life. And, and he said, well, so what? I just love God and my neighbors learn about him through osmosis. And he's like, well, no, not exactly like that. There's, there's more to it than that. But that in and of itself, if you love God, your neighbors will learn about him through osmosis. It will just come out of you and they'll be blessed by it. But of course, there's more to it than that. We actually can purpose with our life to teach others about Christ by the way that we live our life, intentional, knowing that we are influencing those around us. Every single person in this room is influencing somebody. I used to think that there are two people. There are influencers and there are influenced, but it's not true. Every person is an influencer, whether it's to our younger siblings or our younger brothers and sisters or whoever we work with or our children or our parents. We are all influencing. You can't get away from it. And influencing others as a Christian is most often about being an example or a model of Christ. Now, some of us have the privilege and the responsibility of being teachers as an official position, but all of us have the privilege and the responsibility of being teachers by default, of being godly examples. So we have to purpose to influence people towards following Christ and doing his will. I want to focus on this, this modeling part. Being a model of Christ, what is it to, to model his, his values and his works and be like him so that others, when they look at us, they don't see our flaws, our failings, and, and who we are in our flesh. They see our purpose to live like Christ, and they see Christ modeled in our life. It's not going to be perfect, but it's what we're aiming for. It's what we're trying. It's what we're striving to be. And you, you can't teach others things that you have not learned yourself. You must learn in practice and then purpose to teach others what you have learned. Learning things and keeping them to yourself is, is pretty useless, especially when we're talking about God and his principles and precepts. And I'd like to go to a verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's just one verse. And in Matthew 5, verse 15, it says, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Who lights a candle and then covers it? It's pointless. A candle is meant to be lit to give light. And that's how our life is supposed to be. Our, our life with Christ in us is supposed to be seen by men. We're not supposed to go hide it. We're supposed to make sure that others can see it and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Often teaching others things that we have learned can be a chore. It's, it, but it's always worth the investment. Providing we learn good things, of course. Many businesses have ended 
when one person left or retired. No one else knew how to do his job. He or his employer didn't think it necessary to pass on his skill or knowledge to anyone else. And when he went, so did the business. However, in contrast, many skills have been learned and knowledge gained without anyone actually purposing to pass it on. It was passed on through bits and pieces and observations. You spend the time with somebody, you watch them, you learn from them, and then you mimicked what they did. You modeled their example. And we're all being watched. Every one of us is being watched. We're being watched both by God, whom we want to please, and by those around us, whom we want to encourage towards godliness. While we go about our life, we do not want to offend others or cause them to stumble. If you go to Matthew 18, verse 6, it gives a, a very harsh but realistic example of, of how bad it is when we cause offense, when we cause someone to stumble, just how serious we need to take it. In Matthew 18, verse 6, it says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. God is serious about this, about us not offending little ones which believe in me. I don't know if I think it's referring to the children. I think it's referring to new believers. And if we should cause them offense by the way that we live our life, that is contrary to how God desires us to live. It gives, I mean, that's, that's drastic. Better for a millstone to be hanged about his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. So are we living our life in a way that we would want others to follow? Are we striving for the things that we would be happy to see others doing? And how many times have you heard of, of the example of someone who's going and doing something, like they're, they're smoking a cigarette and telling their child, don't smoke. Is that, is that us? Sometimes we, we tell others, don't do this, but then they find us doing the very same thing. Let's do it, turn to First uh, Timoth Timothy chapter 4. I can find it. There it is. Four verse two, and this is an example of what I'm talking about. It says, "Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron." We don't want to be those people who speak lies in hypocrisy. People who who try to portray one thing, meanwhile they live another. People who say one thing, meanwhile, they do another. We want to be those who, who, when people look at our life in all areas, they can see that we are striving for the kingdom of God. Are we showing others a good example of what a Christian is? Christ showed his disciples by example how he wanted them to serve one another. We'll go to John chapter 13.
as I read this again yesterday, I just again was was struck with how incredible this story is. And I'll read it here. It's John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. It says Jesus knew his hour was come. This is what's on his mind. He knows his life on this earth is about to end. And how many of us, when we, we get to you know the final part of our visit at some place where we are, or we know we're running out of time somewhere, we're not thinking about, hey, how can I be a blessing to others in these last moments? It's like, hey, how can I get the most out of this? That's our thoughts, usually. You know, what do I need to make sure I have before I leave or before I go or before I move on to the next <laughs> chapter of life? But here's Jesus. Knowing he's about to go, be handed over, betrayed, and crucified. And what's on his mind? He wants to serve his disciples. And he goes and he washes their feet. And that, that example is just incredible. And the more you think about it, the, the deeper it hits. They should have washed his feet. Every one of them should have been, should have been there washing his feet. They should have been comforting him. They should have been encouraging him about what he was just about to do. This was, this was his moment of greatest trial. And all that he wanted to do was serve more and give more than he'd already given. What an example of service. He was truly laying down his life, not just in death, but his life that he lived was laid down for others. All 33 years was laid down for the sake of others. He was seeking to do nothing for himself, not even to the end when he would have been completely justified to have, to have been seeking comfort, to have been seeking time alone or rest or to prepare himself mentally or physically, but instead service. He was thinking of others. Our love should be a reflection of Christ. What he did, the things that, that he continues to do. So when others try to be like us, they become like Christ. We need to ask ourselves, what does our life reflect? What is permeating from us? What comes out of our life? What do people feel when they're around us? What do people experience when they have a conversation with us? Are we miserable, ungrateful, 
unsatisfied, angry, indifferent? Or do we reflect Christ? Are we a reflection of the things of this world? Or are we a reflection of Christ? We'll go to Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. Talks about where our focus should be. Matthew six nineteen to 21 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is our heart after? What do we love? What are we running after all day? Are we storing up our treasure in heaven? Are we seeking to influence others towards Christ? Are we seeking to become more like Christ? Or are we storing up treasures on earth? Are we worried about us, what we have now, our own flesh, our own hobbies, our own wealth, our own trinkets, our own comforts? Like it or not, the things that we are after, the things that we chase after all day, whether we say it or not, those are the things that we're encouraging and teaching others to run after. It's not what you say so much that counts as what you do. When we have a bad attitude, we encourage others to have a bad attitude as well. When all we talk about is is the things that we want to have, we encourage others to think only about the things they want to have in this life. But when our heart and our mind is focused on Christ and what he's done for us and how to somehow give back something of that infinite ransom that he paid for us, that's what we encourage others to do as well. We Go to Ephesians 4. Verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamors like noise and chaos and evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice, all bad intent. Our bitterness, it needs to go. Our wrath, our anger, all the noise and chaos of our life, our evil speaking, these things need to be put away. And we need to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. Our life needs to center around Christ, His will. We need everything we do to focus on his commandments. As he, as he says them in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, he lays it out. And we were talking about this the other day. It's so simple. So simple in word. But this is so complicated and difficult in action because it goes against 
all our selfish desires. But they ask, the Pharisees ask, I mean, in Matthew here, what, uh, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It sounds so simple, but try to live that one. And I hope we're all trying to live that one. To love our neighbor as ourselves, what does it even what does this even look like practically? You know, and literally it means if there's something that I want, I'm gonna make sure my neighbor has it. If there's something that I would appreciate, I'm gonna make sure I do it for my neighbor. If I want my neighbor to encourage me to be godly and live a godly life, I'm going to encourage my neighbor to live godly and a godly life. That's what it's going to look like. I'm going to think about my neighbor first and his needs and his desires before I think about mine. We should be just as concerned about our neighbor as ourselves, it says. Love thy neighbor as thyself. It doesn't actually say more than yourself. It just says as thyself. But are we too busy being served or serving others, or serving ourselves, sorry, being served, serving ourselves to be able to serve others? Are we too worried about, about us? Service to others is the example that Christ left for us to follow right to the end. He was worried about serving others. And if we want to give ourselves an excuse, I can't do it now because I'm not feeling well or whatever. I mean, look, Christ had the the greatest excuse. He was about to go get crucified. I, I don't think any of us have an excuse like that. And even if one day you are about to be led to be crucified, well, Christ still, he still served. That's the example we have. Even to that point, even we're going to be killed, serving others, being on the forefront of our mind. We owe everything to God. He gave his life for us, and he owed us nothing. He didn't have to do it. We did not deserve it. The greatest ransom price ever paid, infinite value, he paid for us. Are we going to spend that on ourselves? We should count ourselves greatly privileged for every breath that we have that he gave to us and to be able to serve him. to be able to influence those around us by our actions and our deeds. Somebody is watching. Don't fool yourself that you can live in this life and not affect others. We are all affecting others all day, every day. We're affecting someone. We're encouraging someone, either for good or for bad. No man is an island. 
No man stands alone. How we live our life, what we do, what we say does affect those around us, whether we like it or not. Uh, I've got a final verse here in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Wherefore, seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So let our lives be a reflection, a model of Christ, so that we can encourage others to also be like him.